0: Welcome, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. Hope you enjoy the book this week, and we're going to get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. And we are continuing on in the Weight of Glory. Um, If you didn't listen to the first episode of the Weight of Glory that I started, uh, go back, check that out. because that's going to give you some context for where we're going but i really just wanted to jump right in and start continuing where we were because i'm telling you this is some of lewis at his best and uh it's cool because as i was rereading through this copy that i have i'm seeing some of the you know anecdotal statements i've made in the margins and how it connects to other things going on so uh you'll see what i mean in a minute but we left off, I'm not going to repeat a bunch of stuff from the last episode, but we left off with basically the idea that there are a lot of things in our lives that we desire, that we seek after. And it's a question of, are we seeking things as an end in themselves or do we see the greater thing behind them? So the joy that we get out of something like poetry, he uses an example Well, to embrace the joy of poetry, you have to first learn the rules of the alphabet and of grammar and of language before you can really appreciate what's happening with um, poetry. And he uses a few other examples, but we'll just leave it at that. And so he continues on and, and starts to talk about how this is the true object or true desire that we have. This is the true or real pleasure we seek in everything that we do and this is oh, it's so good it's so good all right here we go he says um as i start to talk about this desire for our own far-off country um i feel a certain shyness um i almost feel like i'm committing an indecency i'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. So pause there. What he's saying is he's trying to point to this secret thing that we all feel an inkling in us exists, right? The thing that we're pursuing, the thing that we hope will give us real satisfaction and fulfillment. And yet, because we've never experienced it, sometimes, I love this language, we take our revenge on it because we haven't had it. So it's something we just start to try and brush off by calling it nostalgia, right? Or, oh, it's just a nostalgic feeling. Or, oh, you're just such a hopeless romantic. Or, oh, what a silly adolescent idea. It's the way that we try to explain away this feeling, this urge, this thing crying out in us for something more. he says, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness... That when in very intimate conversations, the mention of it becomes imminent, we all become awkward and laugh at ourselves. It's a secret we cannot hide and yet cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We can't tell it because it's a desire for something that's never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. So again, pause. What he's saying is this is something that when it comes up and the feelings bubble up inside us and we try to put words to it, we we become awkward. Because it's something we are trying to hide and trying to tell. Hide it because we don't really know how to describe it. And yet there's something in us that we're constantly experiencing that suggests there's more to life than what we see. And what Lewis is pointing at, This is um, there's a great book uh, called uh, The Taste for the Other, I believe. Uh, I'll double check and let you know in the next episode, but it's really dense. Uh, I probably wouldn't really recommend it to you unless you catch the Lewis itch like I clearly have had for years. But um, my professor from undergrad recommended it to me because he was a Lewis nerd. I'm a Lewis nerd, but it's all about Lewis's undergirding ideology, philosophy, like core values. And he talks about the reality principle that Lewis has. And I'm not going to go in depth about that, but this is part of it, right? That reality with a capital R, reality is it's supposed to be. And you could parallel that with the kingdom of God, the way that God intends the world to be, Thy will be done. It's something that all of us Feel In us, the joys that we experience in life are pointing us towards what reality is supposed to be. Everything in us is suggesting that this is a real thing, and yet we've never fully embraced or experienced it. We get glimpses. And I think I've talked about this already, but Paul uses this language, right? We see now in a mirror dimly, but on that day a.k.a. the day that that God embraces creation or all things are drawn together in Christ, we will see clearly, right? So all of this is wrapped up in what Lewis is doing here. Um, And so he goes on uh, building on this idea of us being shy about talking about it because we've never experienced it. And yet we feel ourselves longing for this thing, right? And he says, if Wordsworth had gone back to all those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only a reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty we chased was located will betray us if we trust them. The beauty was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we've never visited, I love this. I love all of this. This is Lewis telling us about how all of the things that you're experiencing are pointing us to something beyond themselves. So that's the problem in our lives, right? Is when we try to get back to something we once had. Oh, you know, if we could just get back to the feeling we had the day we got married, if we could just rekindle that magic there. It's like, no, like that was magic in love that was pointing you to the capacity for love you both have but that moment itself wasn't the thing right the feeling you have when you remember with fondness like a childhood memory or the book that you loved or the show or the song like something happened there but again you you could reproduce all of the same factors the same group of friends going to the concert the same band the same chilly night, whatever it is, and it won't necessarily give you the same thing because it was never in that thing itself. It was pointing us to something else entirely. Uh, this is why theology talks about the difference between general revelation and special revelation, which uh, again, uh, I'm losing track of what I've ever talked about on these podcast episodes, but revelation is a word that we uh, mistake for a lot of reasons. But long story short for here, we'll just say that revelation is God revealing God's self to us. And general revelation is the idea of God revealing God's self to all people, regardless of if they've ever touched a Bible or touched Christian theology. Nature is general revelation. And I would say these other things too, that when we believe and affirm that we're made in the image of God, right that means that we all have the capacity to encounter god in some way right but there are echoes of god everywhere that we go god is not limited to the christian tradition in that god can c- communicate and lead and guide people wherever they are i mean, we say you know the passage from first john we love him because he first loved us right Like we only have the capacity to love God because he's already initiated the relationship with us. This is imagery that uh, I pointed to in the silver chair when uh, Jill says that she was calling to Aslan and that's why they were there. And Aslan says, Oh child, you couldn't have called to me unless I had called to you first. God is calling to us through all of these things and Lewis Lewis actually, fun fact, wanted to be a poet and then kind of reflects in his letters that he writes to people that he was a terrible poet. But this is Lewis utilizing poetry beautifully. Again, he says, we're not looking for those things themselves. We're looking for the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we haven't heard, news from a country that we haven't visited. And that's beautiful. The next line, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. I remember is writing in the mid-1900s, so think about what came before that. I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail of the Enlightenment and all these other things, but this is a common Christian image that we are asleep. Some of the old English that talks about um, coming to the faith is about our spirits being quickened or made alive or made awake. We are asleep and we need a spell. We're under one spell and Lewis is saying he's trying to weave another spell to wake us from our sleep. And he's pointing to this stuff because it's it's so embedded in who we are. Now, two places that Lewis gets to this idea of sleep, and this is why well, I'm going to keep repeating this, um, Narnia Uh, The Silver Chair, which I've already done, but this is now uh, I'm pointing to the end of the book, which we haven't gotten to, but we will. And also The Magician's Nephew, which is the prequel to the whole series, but I hope you read it um, second to last because of how he wrote it. But that's just my preference. In both of those Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis gets to this idea of spells and sleep and the importance of waking up. And it's all about this idea of desire. So he says, almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophers have been devised to convince us that the good of humankind is to be found on this earth, and yet it's not good enough. It's not good enough. When these people, this is Lewis again, want to convince you that earth is your home, notice how they set about it. They begin by trying to persuade you that the earth can be made into heaven, giving you the sop story to sense, um, giving a sop to your sense of exile on earth as it is. And then they begin to try and convince you how good things are already and we just need to make them a little bit better. And he's pointing us, or they're trying to point us the idea that we actually have the capacity to be happy on our own. But again, this is completely antithetical to what Lewis believes and what I believe is undergirding everything, which is the Spirit of God. And he says, do, the, do what they will then. We remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisf- satisfaction to it? A man's physical hunger does not prove that a man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the middle of the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where uh, eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I don't believe that my desire for paradise or heaven proves that I will enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and some people will. A man may love a woman and may not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. Now again, Lewis is pointing to this idea that there is something beyond us drawing us in and we don't know quite how to name it. We don't know quite what it means, We're not even sure that we've experienced it. And yet this feeling is drawing us closer and closer. And I would say all of human experience is about trying to gratify and satisfy this longing in us. And that's why you can have real joy in the things that you do, even if they don't have the stamp of Christianity on them, but it doesn't last. So when he talks about this idea Remaining conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. Uh, Elsewhere in mere Christianity, there's the famous quote that, uh, you know, if I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that uh, I was made for another world. Lewis is not content with the idea that things are just fine and we can build it up. And it doesn't lead us to a laziness to say, well, you know, we're getting a new heaven, a new earth, so you know, just do what you got to do to survive here. That's not it either. He's saying, don't mistake the thing for the end we're chasing. Don't mistake the joy you find in this song as the end in itself. Don't mistake this love you feel as the end. These are things pointing you to the true capital R reality elsewhere. And when we have our mindset straight, When we are sure that we are trying to pursue, not always perfectly, but that we are pursuing the true pleasure, the real pleasure, the real thing that God has made us for, namely God's self, well then the other things fall into place. And some things fall out of our line of sight and some things come into our line of sight, but certainly it changes the way that we pursue God. So I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, This is where Lewis is starting to transition into some of the commentary about heaven itself. But he says, you know, he's talking about that he doesn't necessarily think he's going to enjoy paradise or heaven, but that there's an indication that many people will. But when we try to talk about love and falling in love, it'd be very weird if we use that imagery without sex being a factor on some level. In creation. So then he, he goes on, he says, Here then is the desire, still wandering and uncertain of its object, and still largely unable to see that object in the direction where it really is. Our sacred books give us some account of the object. It is, of course, a symbolical account. Heaven is, by definition, outside of our experience, but all intelligible descriptions must be of things within our experience. The scriptural picture of heaven is therefore just as symbolical as the picture which our desire, unaided, invents for itself. Heaven is not really full of jewelry any more than it is really the beauty of nature or a fine piece of music. The difference is that the scriptural imagery has authority. It comes to us from writers who are closer to God than we. The natural appear of this authoritative imagery is, to me, at first, very small. At first sight, these images of heaven in Scripture are chilling rather than awakening my desire. Um, and so he goes on a little bit to explain some of the problems he has with this imagery of heaven. Right? That's what he's just saying. Like, so to summarize, just in case, he's saying that if we believe in heaven, we're literally saying we believe in something outside of our experience, something beyond us that one day we might get to. But obviously, we can only use words to describe it that make sense to us. That's how language works. But if it's something completely outside of our experience, then we can't really explain it. This is exactly what happens with theological doctrines about God. We try to define things about God, and yet every time we do, we stumble upon a paradox. Um, This is a, well... Yeah, a book I'm working on is just all about the paradox of our faith, which is not an original idea. But every time you have one doctrine about God in stone, which is a dangerous place to put some of these doctrines, you also have to write about this other doctrine that is almost counterintuitive to the one you just talked about. Um, And there are a number of examples of how that works. But Lewis is pointing that here. Same thing with heaven, something outside of our experience is going to have to use symbols to help us get an idea of what's happening. But does the symbol make it any less true? This is a deeply theological question. We can use something like the sacraments to unpack this. The body and blood of Christ, whether they literally are the bread and wine or they're represented by the bread and wine, does it take away the power of what's happening in a sacrament just because it's a symbol? Is a symbol merely something that represents something or something more happening there? That's a long, long conversation. Um, I, I literally spent like half a class, like semester uh, debating this uh, in our sacraments class, but that, that's really a fundamental idea. Sim- um, uh, excuse me. Symbols are all around us all the time. There are symbols important to you in your own life that hold power even though they're not the thing themselves. There's a reason why having a picture of someone on your phone or if you're old school, a printed out picture in your wallet, you know that's not the person, but the picture itself, it's more than just a picture. It's a memory. It's, It's all kinds of things wrapped up in this simple thing. Now, of course, you can't mistake the picture of your closest friends or your family or your loved one, as them themselves. And yet the picture, this object, this symbol carries with it so much power and meaning and memory and excitement and longing. And so that's kind of what Lewis is pointing to with this language about symbology. And uh, is that the word? I'm a a little late, I'm a little tired, but uh, about symbols and heaven. And so he says that he's not really interested in the heaven described in Scripture. He says, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in which seemingly um, puzzling or repellent things occur. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. The things that seem the most strange, the things outside of our scope right now are the things that are actually where our desires lie. They're almost the key to the mystery in some way. But I think, again, just to make sure these episodes don't go too long, I'll wrap up here, which I've already said. The big idea from building on uh, the first part of this uh, weight of glory is this idea that the things in our lives are pointing us towards something else. And it doesn't do a disservice to the things. It actually enhances them. And as hard as we try to explain it, we can't. The hunger in our body tells us not that we're going to eat, but that our bodies were meant to eat. And our longing for something beyond us doesn't tell us that we're necessarily going to encounter it, and yet it tells us that it's there. If I find in myself desires which nothing in the world can satisfy, then perhaps I was made for another world. God created the heavens and earth, sure, but we remember the Garden of Eden. You could spend the rest of your life reading the first five chapters of Genesis and be in great shape. There's so much there. But the garden was on earth. The garden was the picture of what it meant to be in community with God, to walk in the garden with God. And all of human history since then is about getting back into that place. Not physiologically back into the Garden of Eden, but back into the setting where we can truly be reflecting the image of God. Getting back to the presence of God, recognizing that it's not about being in a temple in the Middle East. It's not about being in the Holy of Holies. It's not about Sunday or Sabbath, whichever day you celebrate it on. It's about being in the presence of God here and now, wherever you are. But that brings with it a lot of things. And that's what Jesus clarifies. He says, the presence of God, or the kingdom of God, the place in which we are in God's presence, there are some rules about how this works. And the first rule that you should know is that everything is flipped on its head. Read the Sermon on the Mount, the first major exposition of Jesus. That tells you everything you need to know about how the kingdom of God works. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the widows Blessed are the least of these. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is righteousness? The list goes on. This is the desire we were made for. And so, again, I challenge you all this week to think about where you are finding that desire in your own life. Because God wants to meet us where we are. And use us where we are. And it's not a cop-out to say anything goes. It's expansive. It's showing us that God is bigger than we ever imagined. In Lewis's words from the first part of the first episode, it's not that our desires are too great. They're too small. And when we really start to expand our desires, we will be able to see that God is doing so much more than we ever imagined. So that's where I'll leave you with um, what I'll leave you with today. Hope you enjoy this. Hope you pick up the weight of glory, start reading it. But if not, everyone's homework is of course to go get the Chronicles of Narnia and read them. Please. My goodness. I got each of my copies for like less than a dollar each at a used bookstore. So um, it's available if you're ready to go read it. But with that, have a great day. And I hope that you are able to enjoy the things that bring you joy today. And each time you do, say a word of thanks. Peace.